انا عم بربط موضوعين مع بعض اللي هو اول شيء الجهل بالثقافه اضافه لعدم الافاء بالوعود والتسرع باختيارها والاذى اللي بيلحق اللاجئين. النقطه الاخيره بدي بدي افشل لانه كثير هون انا تعوقت اذا بده يعطيني خمس دقائق رئيس الجلسه مشان اعطي بعد مثلين دقيقه معك دقيقه دقيقه طيب دقيقه دقيقه بدي احكي شوي عن الميسرين، الميسرين للحقيقه كمان في اشكاليه، الميسرين بدي اعطي مثال انه في كثير امثله عن لها علاقه بلباقه الباحثين ولها علاقه بسلوكهم يعني كنت حابب اقولها بس فش وقت، بالنسبه للميسرين في كثير من الميسرين يعني بتصرفوا انه هن زي ما قلت لك هي انت عجبتك زي الضمنان هيك شو بقولوا بستان او او ضمنان شويه زيتون بيستفيد من وراء اللاجئين فيعني رحت انا مره مع شخص بده يعمل بحث فتنا عند عائله والعائله تطوع يعني كانت ممتعه بتناسب البحث بدها تشتغل فقاموا قالوا لنا ما فيكم انتم بدكم تروحوا تشوفوا فلان شو خص فلان؟ قال هو منبه علينا احنا لانه بصراحه ما فيناش الا اذا بده يجي حدا بده يحكي عن طريقه. فبعدين انا صرت اعرف هذا الشخص، رحت مره عم بعمل مقابله ثانيه بدي اعطيك كذا مثل، فهو جاب لي بيوم 50 مقابله، طلعت عليهم امه واخته وابوه واخوه وعمه وكذا وهي، قلت له طول بالك هذول بدك تعيدهم لانه انا ما بدي مصدر واحد، مره ثانيه ثالثه ذات الشخص اللي هو معروف جدا رحت انا وياه على الناس فلانه الحكي بصير بالعربي الباحث الاجنبي ما بفهم هذول الاشياء فاجت المره قالت له انا ما طلع لي كرتون المره الماضيه قال لها خلص بس نساوي هاي المقابله ان شاء الله انت ولا همك بس قلت له لا طول بالك هاي ما خصها بالكرتوني انا ما خصني ما ترد علي اذا ما بدك تعمل المقابله ما تعمل هذا الديناميكيه اللي بتصير من تحت الطاوله او بالعربي من وراء من خارج يعني وعي الباحث بتأثر على موضوع البحث وعلى نتائجه لأنه ممكن يكون عم بجيب ناس غير ممثلين ولا يخدموا البحث وهو بالنسبة له بيعرفش عربي فبيقبل أي شيء وبيطلع بقول لك النتاجات كذا وكذا حسب ما بهي من البحث عليه طيب أنا رح أوقف هون بس بدي أقول بعض الخلاصات واحدة بس بس بدي أقول يعني الفكرة الخلاصات اللي بدي أقولها أنه لابد أنه أول شيء يكون في مرجعية بحثية بالمخيمات بتمرق من خلالها هاي الأبحاث احنا ما بدنا نقول ممنوع البحث بس يكون في عن جد حدا براقب الباحثين شو مواضيعهم شو سلوهم اه يكون في بوابة لأنه هذا زي ما قلت له علاقة بحياة الناس وبمستقبلهم مش مطلوب يكون خالد لهالدرجة واثنين يعني أنا بقول لو كل مخيم بشتيلة أخذ صورة أو فيلم أو بحث عن اللي انعمل بشتيلة كان مكاتب الناس ملاني ملاني بس مش موجود ما حدا بيعرف وين هاي الابحاث فلا بد من انه منظمه التحرير او الجهات المرجعيه تعمل داتابيز تجيب هاي الابحاث تكون موجوده بمكان وينشاف شو تحقق منا وشو منا انا اسف للطالب يعطيكم العافيه شكرا رح نبلش بالكلمه الثانيه مع محمد علي نايل كاتب وصحفي مستقل I hope uh, the coffee we all down this morning is already kicking in. I'm personally wired, so if you see me shaking or drenched and sweat, don't worry about me, it's the caffeine. <laughs> um, 
Before I start today, I would like to thank the Institute of Palestine Studies for giving me this opportunity tonight and present this paper and this topic that is uh, high importance to me. And I look forward for criticism and opinions once I present and publish this paper. Today I would like to talk about the invisible hands and knowledge production. Following years of assisting foreign researchers and journalists in producing knowledge across Lebanon, I have spent a substantial time working in Palestinian refugee camps. It all started back in summer of 2006, just after the war ended. My volunteering experience during and after the war opened my eyes uh, towards new prospects about Lebanon and about myself in Lebanon, and so I decided to reinvent myself. I wanted to become a journalist. I discovered the passion of writing, and I decided to tell stories, something that I really liked. And so, um, for lack of finances and privilege to go to university, I decided to become a fixer and translator with foreign uh, journalists and researchers. As you all know, following the 2006 war, there was a massive influx of international journalists, researchers, international NGO workers, and many other um, people from across the world who had a certain interest in Lebanon. So this, this is where I, I started my career as a fixer, and this is how I decided to learn This is how I decided to learn um, the craft of investigative journalism. Um, I started working, as I said, a, fi uh, a fixer with researchers and journalists from across the world. And so, as my experience grew, my naivety uh, dis slowly disappeared, and my, my knowledge uh, grew, grew, grew much bigger. So, uh, after the hype of Israel war on Lebanon resetted, the next story that I was contacted for was the Palestinian camps. Whenever I introduced a researcher to interview Palestinian refugees, there was something um, awkward about the word the researcher, Bahir. People would look at me and say, what is he researching? What does it mean that he's a researcher and came to talk to us? And so, uh, I, I discovered later that this awkwardness is a result uh, of alienation, that the term researcher um, rings as hollow and devoid of direct contact, direct content. My years of experience created a realization that most of the research and journalistic work that I worked with was done for the sake of research, a means to advance personal academic credentials for the establishment of personal careers. Many researchers are confronted with a with question by Palestinians. Why, why, how come so many researchers from across the world have, have walked into our camps week in, week out, but the situation is still the same, actually deteriorating to, to worse conditions? I worked for nine years uh, inside with, with researchers and journalists inside Palestinian refugee camps, and I can't remember any topic that I worked on had had to do uh, with matters that are of interest to the Palestinian refugees themselves, things like self-determination and self-agencies. Such themes for researchers 
and journalists, I was told, were too political or particular issues that my institute won't fund. Through my nine years of assisting and producing knowledge, I realized that this knowledge was, personally, was produced for personal and, uh, advancement and career advancement. Palestinians, and I, know, I also noticed a pattern where Palestinians cynically marvel why these people continue to come to our camps. How come we don't benefit from it? Unfortunately, through an extensive experience in fixing and translating, my belief in the power of the word took major blows. The setbacks resulted from the fact that people's stories to the vast majority of researchers and journalists I encountered was nothing but an establishment of the, of the researcher career utilizing of the researcher's career utilizing people's lives and grievances to serve that career stand. Among Lebanon's 12 Palestinian refugee camps, from my own experience, the utmost attention was given to Shatila, to two camps, Shatila and Al Halwe, by uh, researchers or foreign journalists. Um, and I noticed Al Halwe was favored mostly by American journalists and researchers, especially those who researched for think tanks that lobbied and influenced America's global war on terror. In Western foreign policy discourse, Al Halwe, as I learned from researchers and journalists, was labeled as a terrorist hotbed. This reputation was the result of two Islamist movements who were based in the camp. One of them, uh, is called Osbat al-Ansar, attracted the attention uh, to the camp after it was put by the United States on the list of terrorist organizations following September 11. And so, um, after 2007 war, many uh, of my customers were mostly young freelance journalists who were fresh out of the UK or US School of Journalism. Ayn Halwe was on top of their list. The camps fabled as spooky and suspicious were basically a career launching pad. Then, the invocation of a trip to Ain by both practiced and rookie upstart was announced with an air of adventure as a voyage to the heart of darkness. This misrepresentation of Ain Halwe camp is dangerous because, because the West designating the camp as a terrorist hotbed dehumanized the camp's inhabitants. And Ain Halwe took uh, a life of its own in the imagination of the West. This orientalist perception took shape when Ayn Halwi became a research topic of a book called Everyday Jihad by Bernard Rogier, focusing on a fraction of the camp that hosted a handful of Islamist militants. The book's fame is a result of the author's claim to track the rise of militant Islam among Palestinians in Lebanon. <coughs> the book mainly focuses on a segment of the Lowy camp inhabited by families and clans who have kept their familial ties uh, since before Nakba. The more the war on terror made the news and occupied front pages and headlines, more readers of everyday jihad flocked into Lebanon wanting to go to Ayn Halwe, interview and research terrorists based in the camp. The result of this conduct, I noted, embraced the surge of attention projected the, sorry. The result of this conduct, I noted, through many meetings with Islamists in Al Halwe, was that those marginalized groups uh, were non-existent in, in, uh, in the knowledge of the general population, 
embrace that surge of attention by foreign researchers and, and, and journalists. And during interviews, the researcher insisted on mulling over for hours trying to, 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 to catch a scoop or unravel some sort of conspiracy that never happened. In turn, the Islamist person took advantage and spread his propaganda. So the, so the journalists and the researchers I worked with saw um, the camps only from a terrorist gaze. Palestine simply waned and was reduced to a non-worthy status. Then there was Shatila. And Shatila, on, uh, on a slow news day, I used to get journalists call me and say, let's go to Shatila and find us some Salafis to talk to. Again, this, this camp is, is viewed from a narrow security angle. It's also the go-to camp for academics and researchers <coughs> who have a knack for convenience because of the proximity of the camp and, and ease of access. They would go in the morning and do some research and then in the afternoon hang out in Beirut bars while they type their notes. My next point is on, on the approach by researchers. In my opinion and through my experience, Palestinian refugee camps have become a fetish hub for foreign journalists and researchers. And I'm here speaking strictly about mainstream journalists and researchers that I worked with. Many of those reduced the camps to, to baskets or enclaves of, uh, of, or enclaves of security. And their reductive observations eliminated Palestinians out of their camps and they are replaced by the terrorist persona of the Western imagination. Self-determination and the realization of the right of return are photoshopped out of the imagination of Western journalists and researchers. Only jihadi Islamists make the camp a place worthy of narration and research. One Friday in 2008, while walking out of Ayn al I asked the American journalist I was working with, how come you don't write about the results of Israel, Israeli occupation of Palestine and the ongoing human suffering Palestinians have been enduring ever since, that is very visible all over the camp? His answer is precisely the embodiment of this kind of superiority complex. He said, the Palestinians are incompetent they lost the war. Israel won. The Israelis earned it. It's a redundant story. There's nothing to tell anymore. The superior approach toward Palestinian refugees is perhaps best exemplified in self-entitlement that lurks over interviews. People's time and hospitality are disregarded as worthy of appreciation by the researcher or journalist. This can cause um, interview without cohesion between the interviewer and the interviewee and thus they can become a burden. It makes people reluctant to speak and open up to researchers. At such socially awkward setups, some researchers assume that people, people's reluctance to speak is because they are not telling the truth or they are not trying hard enough. And so as a fixer, I was urged to remind the, the refugees about the prestigious institutes, universities or newspapers the interviewers came from. And they suppose that that air of pomposity is supposed to intimidate or belittle people. And this is precisely the reason why people walk away, I notice people walk away from researchers. Uh, and so, in, uh, in the role of uh, producing knowledge, a fixer role is instrumental into the production of this knowledge. To fix is to convince people to talk, to open up their lives and showcase all their wounds. A fixer has to keep tongues rolling until journalists get their punchline, be it sensationalist or not. 
It's about fixing people to the main open until the researcher had had enough and is able to sift through thousands of words and choose a paragraph and that will fit the argument I'm making in my paper. I was, as a fixer, I was, I was told by my employer to convince people to talk or make them talk. There were a few times when, I, when, I, when, when, when the project or the interview had hit an impasse, I was told to translate, tell them this is for the benefit of Palestine and the cause. My paper would be read by many. Such abstract promises about the benefit the research will endow on Palestine turned me and the researcher I was working with into a laughing stock until I stopped translating such bizarre claims. But then, the most embarrassing of all uh, is when a researcher and uh, a journalist get desperate. And so, at this, at this they try desperate measures and some of them try to bribe people into talking. There was a time when uh, a, a journalist put his hand inside his pocket and pulled out uh, a bunch of uh, crumpled receipts and Lebanese money notes that he couldn't figure out and he pushed it on me and said here, see, see if this will make them talk this is all I got <laughs> a few times uh, people accepted money and went on telling whatever the researcher wanted to hear this gets the job done in no time the researcher spread stories, anecdotes and testimonies exaggerated and sensationalized fueling a nodding head and a scribbling shorthand on occasion, later on, as my naivety shattered, I protested about bribing people to talk simply because when money is involved, the truth is no longer a fact. And so, um, this is the point that I want to make in, uh, today is that The, when people get paid to talk, they want to give back in return to what they are paid for. And so there, there are some fixers have a set of fixed people in different camps that they bring different researchers and journalists to meet and interview over and over again. It's a convenient setup. People get a return for their time. The fixer does the job in no time. And the researcher, journalist, gets, gets what they came from uh, in, a, in a quick time. Uh, only the truth is the biggest loser in such knowledge production engagement. Um, once a fixer told me it's amazing what a $10 can do and he noticed my, my uh, resentful face he said at $20 I can get you a scoop bribing people is one way of getting people talking but sometimes the journalists or researchers start dropping promises as would you like to go live abroad tell me your story my paper will be read by many people once I publish it I'll try, to get you, I'll try to get you out of this camp. In 2010, I had an incident that made me stop uh, a misleading narrative from being produced. Uh, back then, I was working with an American journalist who came to Lebanon to report on social media, and so she decided to go uh, to the camps. She heard about the camps in Lebanon and decided to go from Jemaize to Shatila. It took us 10 minutes in the car. Once we were there, she simply asked me, uh, where is the camp? I told her, this is the camp. She said, where are the tents? Uh, at this point, um, I decided to intervene for the first time and, and stop her from writing a misleading, another misleading story. Um, and as a result, I wrote against 
other misleading stories that she actually wrote uh, about a Lebanon, a Lebanese story. And, and that created a bad influence and a bad reputation to me as a fixer because this was my uh, source of living. I was kind of disheartened and I thought there's so much injustice to talk about, but then at the same time, if I keep exposing journalists, I'm not going to get work anymore. Sorry, I, just, uh, I still have one, one more point to make and I'm out of here. There was another incident by um, a researcher, uh, professor from Harvard, where uh, it exemplifies this kind of misconduct, where Palestinian refugees are basically uh, used as a, a, a lab uh, and where students were brought to Lebanon to train with Palestinian refugees. The professor basically wanted to train her students in human rights interviews. But the problem is that they didn't tell uh, people that this was the case. They told people we are here because we have a project that would benefit Palestinian women. Uh, and so people opened up and decided to talk to them. Unfortunately, the story was not, was not this case. It was just a training course for her students. The problem with this experience is that academics and researchers <laughs> tend to enforce their own discipline on people who have just fled the war and are worried about their own survivors. Okay. Finally, there should be no denial about the differing roles that fixers can play in knowledge creation, both good and bad. Clearly, if a scholar or journalist doesn't speak Arabic, the fixer and translator has an added element to whatever is being fed into the notebook. The creation of an X knowledge is no longer a free flow or a one-to-one -one interaction devoid of an additional perspective. Fixers and translators are the invisible hand that alter the process of knowledge production in various ways. The knowledge production act takes place outside outside the control of the researcher or the journalist. Depending on the integrity of the fixer or translator, the process of collecting information